Welcome to My Health and Safety, the podcast designed to bridge the gap between your personal and workplace wellness. I'm Tamara Misevich-Healy, a passionate health and safety professional who strives to help create a happier and healthier world. Workplace health and safety is simply a continuation of our personal health and safety, but we often feel powerless at work. You know, where we currently spend over a third of our life, Although it may feel hopeless to integrate the two, I'm here to challenge that it's very much within reach and is absolutely necessary for our long-term well-being. Now, let's learn how to take things from powerless to powerful. Hello, and welcome back to the My Health and Safety podcast. Today, we are continuing on with our risk assessment micro series. The first episode in this three-part series was all about hazard identification. We discussed what a hazard is, how MyHS Alliance likes to generally break hazards down into eight types, and why it is so important everyone is trained in hazard identification for both their professional and their personal life. According to data, working-aged individuals are getting injured and dying from fatal injuries significantly more off of the job than on. The National Safety Council states that more than 9 out of 10 deaths and 85% of the medically consulted injuries suffered by workers in 2020 occurred off of the job. And these numbers are based on a whole slew of factors. But really, I just want to stress that people need to be empowered themselves because you are not going to have the same resources and professionals available to you outside of work to assess and control for hazards and their associated risk. And that's our mission at MyHS Alliance to empower every single human being the best we can to take further control of your health, safety, and well-being, whether it's on the job or not. That being said, shall we get started? Today's episode is going to be all about risk. What is risk? How do we measure risk? How much risk is too much risk? If you're thinking, I don't know, Tammy. Risk sounds like a big, boring topic that I could never wrap my head around. I'm here to tell you you're wrong because we all measure risk every single day in our lives. Sure, some of us may have a better system in place for analyzing and evaluating risk that helps to cut through our personal perceptions that may cloud our judgment. But that's exactly why it's so important we talk about risk, how to better strengthen our own ability to assess it, and to more confidently make decisions surrounding it. We're going to get into plenty of fun examples. Yes, I said fun for this introductory episode to risk. (laughs) Okay, so let's just recap really quick from episode number six on what are hazards. We simply define a hazard as a potential source of harm. And this includes harm to person, place, or thing, animals and the environment included. Under that definition, we stressed that hazards are everywhere. 
But to help us organize them a bit, I shared that my EHS Alliance likes to break them down into eight types. And those were biological, chemical, ergonomic, fire, health, physical, psychosocial, and safety. We then asked, should we try to eliminate them all from our lives? To which I said, of course not. We wouldn't want to do that, nor would we even realistically be able to do that. However, there will be hazards that are worth eliminating and are in our best interest as an individual, organization, or even society to do so. So how do we make these decisions on which hazards to control for and how much we need to put into those control methods? You got it by assessing the risk. Hmm, that must make risk pretty important. It sure is. And whether you realize it or not, you're making decisions constantly based on your own perceived risk of a hazard. But our perception isn't always the full truth. At one time, asbestos was considered a miracle product and used anywhere it could be utilized. It not only was perceived as safe by the general public, but thought to greatly benefit our lives and homes. No precautions were taken around it because the perceived risk was low to none. Unfortunately, this perception stems from the marketing around these products and the idea that companies and our government agencies validate the safety of products before allowing their mass production and distribution into society. And sadly, that is not true. And often, it is a battle to prove the harm after so much has already been done. What a terrible, retroactive process that unfortunately prevails today. However, this is another talk for another day, but should simply highlight the importance of good research, science, and policies so we can be empowered with information to make the best decisions. Before we move forward with analyzing and evaluating risk, I want to stress that risk management and the risk assessment process should be performed by qualified individuals in the workplace, but they should be collaborating and involving pertinent employees as sources of information and input into the assessment. So it's a good idea for everyone to have a general understanding of this process, to understand our role in it, how decisions are being made, and why certain controls are being put in place throughout the facility. Having shared knowledge on risk and the risk assessment process allows people to more effectively communicate and collaborate around it. And isn't that the goal of workplace health and safety? But it's also a good process to know so you can strengthen your personal risk assessment abilities, which helps keep you, your family, and your friends safe. So we know what hazards are now, potential sources of harm, and that they are everywhere, but can usually be broken down into eight types. And that the distinguishing and critical things to remember um, to consider with each hazard is its level of risk and the justification of that risk. So what is risk? Risk can be defined as the combination of the likelihood of the occurrence of harm and the severity of that harm. 
So the likelihood and the severity are what we need to assess and identify. And the process of identifying hazards, analyzing and evaluating the risk, and then determining the most appropriate ways to eliminate or control for the hazard is called risk assessment. And we're going to do some really basic, informal risk assessments that would be comparative to something we are all already doing in our everyday life. All right, so performing risk assessments is critical to our survival. Most of us simply don't realize that's what we're doing. Each of us has this capability, and we would all benefit from strengthening our risk assessment skills through expanding our knowledge around it, clarifying the process for it, knowing what information we need to gather, where we can reliably get that information, how we then evaluate that information to decide upon if controls are needed, to what extent the controls are needed, and what controls or combination of controls that is going to be. We then want to monitor and reevaluate the hazard and the controls we put in place to ensure they have sufficiently and sustainably eliminated or reduced the hazard to a safe or acceptable level. I'm hoping our discussion today can help clarify and strengthen this skill in each of my listeners so that you may have more confidence in making decisions around your health and safety. Now, I know this can feel like heavy stuff. And I hope I'm not losing anybody because we are about to transition to some examples. And they are light, everyday examples that we can all relate to and understand. And I really think that they will start to put everything into perspective um, as we continue this discussion. Now, there are a whole slew of risk assessment tools out there that professionals often utilize to assist in their process of assessing and managing risk. And they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but they are all generally helpful in organizing, visualizing, and communicating the risk. We're not going to get into the details of those specific tools today, but instead work through these examples as we may in our mind at home which is similar to a very basic version of a risk matrix tool. We're simply going to rate both the likelihood and the severity as either low, medium, or high. And then the combination of those two ratings will give us an overall risk rating of immediately dangerous, high risk, medium risk, low risk, or very low risk. I'm going to display an example of this risk matrix tool and its corresponding ratings on the screen now, if you are watching this on YouTube. For my audio listeners, you can check out the YouTube video at a later time if you'd like, um, or I have shared a link in the show notes to the Canadian Center for Occupational Health and Safety's risk assessment page, which is where I pulled the sample risk matrix tool from. However, I don't want you to get too hung up on the tool itself for this activity because this is really more of an introduction to risk and how different factors impact the situation, risk, and controls. So are you ready, my risk assessors? (laughs) Here is our first scenario. You walk into the kitchen and your two-year-old is holding a steak knife. Oh boy. Is there a hazard present? Yes. 
What is the hazard? The steak knife. Who is at threat from this hazard? The two-year-old. For practice, what hazard type would a sharp knife fall under? It would be considered a safety hazard. Okay, now that was sort of our hazard identification breakdown. Yes, there is a hazard. It is a sharp knife, which would be considered a safety hazard, and the two-year-old holding it is the one at risk of being harmed. Now let's assess the risk. Remember, risk looks at the likelihood and severity of harm. So what is the likelihood of your two-year-old getting hurt while playing with a steak knife? And we're going to define this simply as low, medium, or high. There is a high probability or likelihood that your two-year-old will get hurt if playing with a sharp steak knife. Unless you've done extensive training with them on knife safety and safe practices, it's probably only a matter of time until they grab the blade. What is the severity of your two-year-old getting hurt with a steak knife? Once again, we're just going to use a low, medium, or high rating for these examples. The severity could range anywhere from low to high reasonably. So we would go with the more protective high rating. If you give your two-year-old enough time with a sharp knife, there is a high likelihood they are going to touch the blade and get cut, potentially requiring medical attention. However, they may also run around with the knife and could bump into things or fall, causing a more serious injury such as being stabbed. With a high likelihood and a high severity rating, you would have an immediately dangerous, immediately dangerous risk rating, which means you should stop the hazardous activity and implement controls immediately. And what would good controls look like here? Removing the steak knife from the two-year-old, relocating it to a safe location where it cannot be accessed by the child, and then explaining to them why playing with the steak knife is too risky for them right now. Lastly, you are going to monitor and ensure the relocation of the sharp knives was effective and the child can no longer access them. Now, for fun, let's ask if this risk is justified taking without controls. I think most of us would agree it's not. The benefit our child gets from playing with a sharp knife is not worth the risk at this age. And so we control for it the best we practically can. Wow, you just performed a basic risk assessment. I am very proud. <laughs> As you may see, we do risk assessments and manage risk all the time in our everyday lives. And we probably never even realized that what we're trying to identify is the likelihood and the severity when measuring these everyday risks and how we want to proceed with them. Now, I don't want you to get too caught up in the low, medium, and high rating system, especially as you're just getting started here. It's simply a way to assist in thinking through the risk and what its likelihood and potential severity looks like. However, there are so many factors at play in these assessments and decisions, and they need to be weighed. So utilizing a risk matrix tool, such as the low, medium, and high rating system, is just that, a tool amongst the toolbox it takes to address and manage risks.
And oftentimes, it takes extensive research to better clarify the likelihood and severity for these risks, as we'll sort of touch a bit more on later. And just realize that this is an introductory episode. All right. I also wanted to mention that I like to ask three questions while analyzing and evaluating the risk. One, does this hazard need to be controlled? Two, if yes, then to what extent does this hazard need to be controlled in order to be safe or acceptable? And three, is the risk justified? These three questions have been very helpful for me when personally or professionally assessing risk. And as simple as they may seem, these questions can take extensive research, collaboration, and investigation to answer. And even then, there's always some variation in personal beliefs and perceptions, and even some unknowns. Now, let's continue on to scenario number two. I'm going to utilize the same scenario, but change one factor at a time to show how it changes the risk and the controls we put in place. All right, scenario number two, you walk into the kitchen and your 16-year-old is holding a steak knife. Now, I want to note that this is not in a violent manner, (laughs) but to utilize in the proper way of cutting up his food. Is there a hazard present? Yes. What is the hazard? The steak knife. Who is at threat from this hazard? Your 16-year-old. For practice, what hazard type would a sharp knife fall under? It's a safety hazard. So yes, there is a hazard, and that hazard did not change. It is a sharp steak knife, which would be considered a safety hazard, and the 16-year-old holding it is the one at risk of being harmed. Now, let's assess the risk. What is the likelihood of your 16-year-old getting hurt while using a steak knife? Low, medium, or high? Well, if your 16-year-old is only using the knife to cut the meal you already made for him, then generally speaking, there is a low likelihood that your 16-year-old is going to get hurt while using the steak knife. Of course, this depends on the individual their knowledge and experience with using knives, as well as other factors. There is also a low risk associated with walking with the knife from the kitchen drawer to the table and then to the sink. Because by the age of 16, we generally have much better balance and control and an understanding to hold the sharp edge away from our bodies. Once again, there are individual differences that should be considered. However, their likelihood may increase if they are using the knife to prep a variety of food, which may put them at a medium likelihood. And their likelihood definitely increases more if they are using the steak knife completely inappropriately, like using it to chisel some wood they found or for some other function it was not designed for. But in this scenario, We consider our 16-year-old using a steak knife to cut up his meal as a low likelihood for getting hurt. Now, what is the severity of your 16-year-old getting hurt with a steak knife? Low, medium, or high? The severity would remain the same. 
Your teenager is probably walking around with the knife, at least from the drawer to the kitchen table. So although the likelihood of falling with the knife or cutting him or herself is lower, the severity of the outcome is still going to be the same. Anywhere from cutting yourself to potentially stabbing yourself if you were to fall with it. So this scenario ends up giving us a low likelihood, but still a high severity rating, which would translate to an overall medium risk rating. And under that rating, you would keep the process going, but develop and implement a control plan. And at 16, you've probably already put those controls in place, whether you even realize it or not. And that's why you are not concerned when you walk into the kitchen and see your 16-year-old with a steak knife. What would good controls look like here? Definitely administrative controls on educating your child not to run or play around with knives and to always walk with a knife holding the blade down in case um, one is ever to fall with it. Perhaps you even provided some hands-on training with knives, considering things like which knife works best for cutting each food, showing them how to properly cut trickier foods like bagels, spaghetti squash, rutabaga, peppers, and um, fine dicing, Um, how having um, items and holding them in certain ways helps keep you safe. Also, periodically checking the knives to ensure they are in good working condition. Um, or if they need to be sharpened, because dull blades can actually be more dangerous to use than a sharp one, because you use more pressure and they t- uh, tend to slip more. And this education and training probably takes place in some form as you initially start allowing your child to use sharper knives and perform more tasks with them. Lastly, you are going to monitor and ensure you see them using knives responsibly or further controls may be needed. Now, let's ask if this medium risk rating is justified, is justified taking without controls. Some people may feel fine with letting their children explore knives and learn for themselves. Others feel much more secure after they educate and train their children on proper usage and techniques because it contributes to lowering the likelihood of harm. I am a firm believer that empowering people with knowledge and best practices is always a great thing. Now, even with education and training controls, there's still going to be that medium risk every time they use a knife. Is that risk justified? Most of us would agree to yes, which is why it is perfectly normal to see 16 16-year-olds handling steak knives and cutting their own food. We've helped them lower their likelihood as much as possible, and the remaining risk is something they need to be aware of as they utilize knives. As kids grow, they take on more and more risk. And really, it's just the transition to adulthood and the world we live in. But understanding risk can help us make better decisions and implement the best controls. So even though eliminating knives for our 16-year-old would be the most protective control, it's not the most practical or beneficial. So in this scenario, we find the remaining level of risk justified. (laughs) All right, on to scenario number three. You walk into the kitchen 
and the serial killing doll from the movie Child's Play, Chucky, is holding a steak knife. <laughs> uh, well, now, this changes things a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> is there a hazard present? Yes. What is the hazard? The steak knife and the murderous doll. Who is at threat from this hazard? You. For practice, what hazard type would a sharp knife and a murderous doll fall under? The knife is a safety hazard, but used in an intentional, violent manner by Chucky, it would all typically fall under violence within psychosocial hazards, with Chucky being the primary hazard and the knife being the tool he's utilizing in an attempt to harm you. So, yes, there is a hazard, and the direct hazard did change. It is the possessed, murderous doll, Chucky, which would be considered a violent psychosocial hazard, and you are now the one at risk of being harmed. Now let's assess the risk. What is the likelihood of you getting hurt while Chucky is after you? Low, medium, or high? Definitely high. Chucky is an aggressive little bugger who's difficult to stop, and if you've seen the movies, almost impossible to kill. What is the severity of you getting hurt by Chucky? Low, medium, or high? Once again, definitely high, as Chucky is known to ruthlessly murder those around him. So high likelihood and high severity gives us an immediately dangerous risk rating, as we can definitely imagine. This situation is different from the other two in plenty of ways, but one is that it is an emergency situation. So it's too late to proactively put controls in place. At this point, you are going to recognize the emergency situation and respond with your fight or flight response, hopefully calling emergency services and being able to get away from or take out Chucky. Only for him to come back in a few years, of course. (laughs) However, if this wasn't an emergency situation, but instead a proactive emergency action plan regarding violent intruders, Some controls you may put into place include always locking the doors, locking windows, a security system, taking self-defense classes, or in this case, maybe keeping the emergency contact number for a priest who can expel the serial killer's soul from the good guy doll and finally put Chucky to rest. (laughs) But let's return to reality for a moment. We all know the severity from intentional violence is high. Potential death. So it's really the likelihood that fluctuates here. And unfortunately, it feels like that likelihood is getting higher and higher. Schools, workplaces, malls, concerts, parades, grocery stores, movie theaters, nightclubs. It just feels like a violent attack is possible anywhere these days. Now, does this violence risk need to be controlled for? To what extent does it need to be controlled for? And is this level of risk without controls acceptable and justified? Is the level of risk with controls acceptable and justified? 
So many questions that I'm going to let you ponder on. Now, no matter how proactive we are, we can never imagine every single possible situation. But the benefits of preparing for the most likely emergencies often flow over into those we didn't fully consider. So this last scenario was an emergency situation, and obviously we wouldn't stop and perform a risk assessment in the middle of it, nor would we need to, to know we're in immediate danger. However, you may do an incident investigation after the situation to see where things went right, wrong, and identify areas for improvement. The first situation we reviewed with the two-year-old would be considered a near-miss situation. Harm didn't occur, but easily could have, and you got lucky to have caught it before it did. These situations are red flags and should be rectified immediately. The second situation was not a near-miss, nor an emergency situation, but similar to something like a job hazard analysis on your 16-year-old using a steak knife. And then as we said, this last scenario was definitely an emergency situation that needed to be handled before we could put future controls in place and lower our risk from violence. All right, so we've already covered a lot of information, especially if you're new to all this. I hope those examples were able to sort of open your eyes more on how we all measure risk and make the decisions based on that assessment and what we're doing when we put these controls in place. Now, these examples were pretty straightforward, and unfortunately, a lot of hazards aren't as clear-cut. Perhaps the science isn't even there yet. A great recent example of that is when the COVID-19 pandemic began. There was so much unknown, so much conflicting information and guidance, and straight-up misinformation out there. Everyone was trying to assess the risk and what that meant for every decision in their life. Go to work or work from home, um, send my kids to school or homeschool, have family holiday party or call it off this year. There was so much uncertainty, fear, mistrust that a united response never seemed to come. And that kind of surprised me. But the risk from COVID wasn't the only risk we were trying to evaluate in our lives. We were worried about the economy, about our small businesses, about medical staff and supply shortages, about getting basic supplies such as food, pharmaceuticals, baby food. We were worried about mental health and its impact on our elderly, our children, how it would affect domestic abuse and substance abuse, and still so much more. It was a lot. And honestly, it's still a lot. And there is a reason why everyone feels so burnt out, because we're trying to assess this multifaceted, interconnected, ever-changing risk and make decisions about our lives and our families' lives around it. And that's a lot. Not to mention all the other things going on in the world and our personal lives. So please give yourself and others grace, because at the end of the day, We're all just trying our best. 
The one thing we can be appreciative of here is the improved access to communication and information. However, that also means knowing what sources are reliable. But for a lot of everyday questions around how dangerous something is, we can't always do a quick search. And I am so thankful we have this capability. Google, is it okay that my dog is out here eating acorns? Google, is it safe to put Neosporin on my baby's cut? Google, should I wear PPE while tearing down plaster walls in my house? What PPE should I wear? Google, is it safe to pour gasoline on a fire? Google, how should I dispose of old used oil? We are so fortunate today that we basically have immediate access to information at all times to assist us in making better decisions for the health and safety of ourselves, those that we love, and the world. Now, as we already discussed, there are a lot of situations that get more complicated than a simple Google search. And that's where having good communication, collaboration, a solid, well-rounded knowledge base, and fantastic researching skills come into play. And really, those are some of the strengths of workplace health and safety professionals. They should have a solid, well-rounded knowledge base, fantastic researching skills, but also be great at collaborating and communicating with other workers, with management, with researchers, with other companies, with government agencies, with nonprofits or support agencies, etc. Because no one person is going to know it all. But the most important first step is recognizing a hazard, then performing the risk assessment, um, risk analysis and evaluation, then determining the most appropriate way to control for it, and then monitoring and evaluating for long-term effectiveness and improvement. As we close up on our talk surrounding our introduction to risk, I'm going to give you a list of scenarios that highlight risk and how different factors can impact the level. I want you to consider the risk associated with walking down the stairs. Now, walking down the stairs in heels. Now, walking down the stairs in heels drunk. Now, walking down the stairs in heels, drunk, carrying glass bottles of champagne. And finally, walking down icy stairs in heels, drunk, carrying glass bottles of champagne. I cringe even saying those because the likelihood and severity is just piling on and should make you uncomfortable because that means you're paying attention to risk. (laughs) But how much risk is too much risk? So amongst this series of walking down the stairs example, at which point would you stop and say, no, this is too risky? And what's interesting is the answer is different to everyone. We all have a different risk perception and tolerance, which can complicate things. But science, ethics, and governing bodies try to wrap some numbers and guidelines around it to keep society functioning and sustainable and 
hopefully as healthy and safe as reasonably possible. And that's where we're going to end today. (laughs) And with that, I hope you all have a wonderful, healthy, and safe week and never have to deal with scenario number three, where you walk into your kitchen only to find the serial killer-possessed Chucky doll. (laughs) But perhaps we should dedicate an episode to create an emergency action plan around it, just in case. (laughs) I want to thank you again for joining me and to those who have reached out or commented on our YouTube videos. We really appreciate hearing about what you enjoyed from our episodes and your own stories you've shared with us. Our next episode will be the last episode of our risk assessment micro series, and it's going to cover the hierarchy of controls. That's right. We've learned about identifying hazards, an introduction to assessing the risk, and now we need to discuss the role of controls and how to decide on which one we should be putting in place. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. All show notes and guest bios can be found on our website at myhealthandsafety.com. That's myhealthandsafety.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and had at least one damn that's good moment. You know, a moment in the discussion that just lit up those neurons in the brain. It may not be a whole new concept, but better clarity, visual, example, or tool to more effectively understand, communicate, or use on a concept. If you didn't have a damn that's good moment during this episode, well, then just damn. Share your moments in the comments or on social media with us. We want to know what brings you the most value so we can strive to deliver more. If you enjoyed our content, make sure to like, share, and subscribe to our channel. 